Well, hello, fellow ag nerd. Thanks for joining me for another episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich, and I get to share with you the farmers, founders, innovators, and investors shaping the future of agriculture. Before we get going today, though, special shout out to Niall Hawley for joining the FOA community. You can join Niall and other super cool ag leaders over at patreon.com forward slash agriculture. Thank you so much to Niall and those of you who have joined that community and supported this show. Thanks as well to those who filled out the listener survey. If you haven't yet, that's still open and active, and I would love your feedback. The link for that is in the show notes to this episode in the last, I don't know, eight episodes or so. One piece of consistent feedback, though, I'm getting on that survey, and, I, and I've gotten really since the show began, is that many listeners love stories of the entrepreneurial journey. And if that's you, you're in luck because I have a very cool entrepreneurial journey to share with you on the show today. This is a farmer who came back to the farm in Montana and convinced his dad in the 1970s to let him convert the farm to organic. Then over the next four decades, he built not only his organic farm, but also a seed business and a food business selling organic lentils and chickpeas, as well as ancient grains and some other farm products. His story is so remarkable, it was actually made into a book called Lentil Underground. Today, you're going to get to hear the story of Dave Oyen of Timeless Seeds and Timeless Food. He shares how he figured out how to convert to organic when very few at that time thought it was possible, then how he built a seed business that ultimately became a food business. And make sure you stay to the end because he's got some really interesting comments there about resiliency. This episode was created and originally published as part of another podcast I host called Growing Pulse Crops. Dr. Audrey K. Lyle with the Pulse Crops Working Group, who produces that show, graciously allowed me to re-air this episode on this program for you. So if you're at all interested in pulse crop production, that's peas, chickpeas, and lentils, make sure you also go check out that show. It's called Growing Pulse Crops. It's on any podcast platform. Okay, now to Dave Oyen of Timeless Seeds. Dave's going to start our conversation here reflecting on when he moved back to his 280-acre family farm near Conrad, Montana, after college in the 1970s, driven by a vision of making organic agriculture work. So uh, I moved back to the farm in, in 1976, started converting it to organic in the uh, early to mid-80s, became certified organic, I think it was in 1986, maybe 1988, on the whole farm, just kind of went cold turkey, kind of figured it out from there. Uh, the story of Timeless Seeds really starts not only with myself, but with, with three friends that had, you know, very similar stories, moving back to the family farm, or in one case, kid out of, uh, out of Wyoming who moved to Montana in order to pursue his dream for a more sustainable agriculture so we got together in 1987 and really started this business because of our need to diversify our cropping rotations because we were all certified organic and a need to look for alternatives to synthetic nitrogen since that's not allowed in, in organic production. That led us to a researcher at Montana State University, uh, Dr. Jim Sims, who was working on an innovative um, self-regenerating cover crop called Black Medic, but he was also looking at annual legumes uh, that could also serve as soil-building cover crops, uh, lentils being one of those. 
And uh, that was really kind of our introduction, you know, to pulse crops, not as an edible crop, actually, uh, but just as a soil building cover crop. But, um, you know, we discovered that, boy, these lentils are absolutely nutritious food, great for our livestock, good for our rotations, good for our farming practices. And as luck would have it, you know, the organic industry was really kind of starting to get some legs in the early 90s. So the markets were expanding and we discovered that, in fact, there was a need in the food market for certified organic lentils and peas in those days. And about a decade later, we started growing chickpeas as well. But, you know, thanks to uh, this researcher at, at MSU, we learned that, you know, a number of false crops are really very well suited to the semi-arid, cool environment that we experience in, in the American Great Plains. That was really our introduction. Later in today's episode, Dave will talk about why he doesn't recommend this cold turkey approach to transitioning to organic that he took. But he does say it came with some lessons from the School of Hard Knocks. He quickly learned, for example, that in order to make the system work, he was going to have to build healthier soils and he would need to find sources of organic nitrogen. That's a big part of what led him to lentils. North central Montana, wheat has always been king. I grew up on a wheat farm. On our irrigated ground, we grew malt barley. You know, it was cereal grain. And, you know, in those days, it was uh, cereal grain, you know, basically fence row to fence row. And on the dry land, it was um, cultivated fallow and cereal grain, cultivated fallow and cereal grain, year after year, decade after decade. What, you know, I discovered on my own farm was that um, when I moved back to the farm in uh, in the mid-70s, that ground had been farmed probably since the 20s. My father purchased it uh, in 1939. But the soil organic matter, you know, in the native prairie in our area would be something probably between, you know, 5 and 7% soil organic matter, depending on, you know, the particular location. But uh, when I moved back to the farm, our ground was a half to 1.5% soil organic matter. You know, and my dad, you know, like virtually every farmer in his generation after World War II, started using increasing amounts of synthetic nitrogen. And obviously cultivation was a huge part of agriculture in the in the 50s and 60s and, and well into the 70s. Uh, so the soil had, you know, basically degraded over those 30 or 40 years. And that's what I discovered when I came back and, and you know, wanted to convert the farm to certified organic. Uh, the more I read, the more I learned, the more I practiced, the more it seemed like, wow, we need to change the way we do things, both to meet the growing market, but also just to pay greater attention to the health of the soil. And again, you know, particularly critical for organic farmers who can't use the synthetic inputs that conventional farmers have available to them. And uh, lentils was really the key. Lentils was the key to us because for I farm. Uh, the average uh, annual precip, snow and rain together, is somewhere, you know, 12 to 14 inches total annual precip. And, you know, cool springs, uh, relatively cool summers. So the lentils were really a great fit. Started out just using them as cover crop as a replacement for the cultivated fallow. And then, you know, growing them up to, you know, maybe bud, early bloom, something like that. You know, and then tilling them back in the soil undercutting them with a, with a V-blade or, or with a, 
duckfoot sweep, something like that, and then returning to cereal grain the following year. But in the late 80s, early 90s, we discovered, wow, these can actually be a cash crop as well. So we started rotating the cereal grains with a variety of pulse crops, and we experimented with many, many cover crops, not only the George Black Medic that Dr. Sims developed, but also some medics out of Australia uh, that they'd used for decades down there in the uh, what's called the clover lay system down there, regenerating a self-volunteering cover crop. But the lentils also worked, you know, extremely well as a cover crop. It was an annual, obviously did not did not regenerate. So you had to plant it every year, which, you know, may be a positive, maybe a negative the way you look at it. But it worked well. And then once we discovered that, wow, you can actually eat these things too, you know? <laughs> uh, Montana, like uh, uh, probably like much of the Midwest, is, uh, you know, kind of a meat and potatoes state. I probably never ate a lentil in my life, you know, until I uh, started growing them myself and uh, feeding them to my livestock and, and so forth. You know, like, wow, well, uh, didn't kill anything, didn't kill me. And the more research I did, the more I discovered these are actually, you know, a superfood. Very high in, you know, lots of nutrients, high in protein, high in folates, just, you know, just checkbox after checkbox. It's like, these are actually good food. You know, the natural food, the organic food industry, you know, was really one of the primary customers, you know, for lentils. Dating back to the 60s and 70s when people were looking at vegetarian diets and so forth, lentils had actually been on the table of lots of people, but a very small percentage of people in the U.S., even in the early 90s, and of course, in the last 20, 30 years, the interest in plant-based protein, plant-based food has just nothing but increased year after year. The plant-based food movement is just the latest in consumer preferences that are shifting demand towards pulses. Over the past few decades, Timeless has sold lentils and other organic products to customers all around the country, including an early relationship with a growing grocery chain called Trader Joe's. In the early 90s, we went to a, uh, a natural food show called Natural Expos West down in Anaheim, California, kind of one of the real big organic natural food trade shows in the U.S. We just displayed our products and were discovered by a relatively small chain at that time. I think they had 60 or 70 stores called Trader Joe's. They loved what they saw. And they said, gee, we, you know, we really want your product. So we showed them this beautiful 25-pound bag that said certified organic, grown in Montana, you know, all the things. And they said, oh, well, gee, that's real nice, but we don't care about any of that. It says, we don't care about organic. We don't sell things in 25-pound bags. We sell things in one-pound retail packages that are clear that people can see the product, you know. Can you do that? He said, uh, yeah, we can do that. you got to give us some time to figure it out, though, because we've never done that. So it's kind of the school of hard knocks. By necessity, we figured out how to make things um, meet food grade specifications and uh, eventually how to put them in, in a retail bag. We learned by necessity, that's all. And, you know, over the course of the last just over 30 years now, we've been, you know, very fortunate in finding customers all across the U.S. and, and even overseas who really like our products and like the quality that we can provide. And so we sell now and everything from the one pound pack up to 10 pound for a food service for the restaurant industry. 
25 pounds that might end up in a bulk bin and, you know, in hundreds of natural food stores around the country and all the way up to the big tote bags, 2,000 pounds or for export, uh, uh, one metric ton tote bags. Today, Timeless is still known for their lentils, but they sell a variety of products, some of which are their own proprietary genetics that they sell the seed for, others that have been around for literally centuries. Our primary business is still lentils. We do a number of different varieties, one of which the little black lentil, black beluga lentil. We actually introduced that to the food industry in 1994 and trademarked it. No one had ever eaten, you know, at least in the U.S. and in, in the Western Hemisphere, certainly, had eaten a black lentil before. And we were using that as a cover crop and then just discovered how nutritious it was. It was one of the highest protein lentils that we'd ever tested. Over the course of about a decade, people started becoming accustomed to it. It's one of those things, you introduce a new product to the marketplace, you don't know if it's going to work or it's not going to work. And for a decade, it kind of did not work because because nobody saw this little BB as food, you know, as something to eat. Uh, but now it's one of our most popular lentils. If you go on the internet and Google black beluga lentil now, you'll find, I mean, hundreds, thousands of citations, you know, of recipes and so forth. And it's kind of fun to think back to say, wow, that, that name black beluga lentil was invented by four farmers who didn't know much about farming, <laughs> about organic farming, and knew nothing about the marketplace. Uh, but, uh, but we named it and we trademarked it. It's known around the world, frankly. But we do, you know, we do red lentils, we do French green lentils, we do kind of the standard green lentil, we do Spanish brown lentils, and we do decorticated green lentil that we call uh, harvest gold. Uh, the cotyledon is yellow. You know, each has, you know, kind of a, a particular, you know, niche, I guess, a particular application. Some customers like some better than the others and so forth. But today we do basically seven different types of lentils. We do uh, garbanzo beans. We have recently introduced a, uh, a black chickpea that we call Black Butte chickpea, uh, named after a mountain in Montana. And then we do a couple heirloom grains as well to help our farmers in the rotations, because just as it makes poor agronomic sense, it, it, it does not make good agronomic sense to grow cereal grain after cereal grain after cereal grain, or corn after corn after corn, or whatever it is. Similarly, with the pulse crops, you know, it's important to rotate those pulse crops and not grow them year after year after year. They are susceptible to some diseases. The best way to to guard against, you know, disease and pest infestation is just crop rotation. It's just a fundamental tenet of, of organic agriculture that uh, rotations are critical in making that system work. So in addition to the lentils, we do have the opportunity for some of our growers to grow an ancient wheat called emmer and then also a hollis barley uh, that we've also trademarked called purple prairie barley. And they date back 10,000 years agronomically and in the culinary world. Dave says Timeless mostly sells these products through distributors. Their popularity is not only driven by the demand for natural and organic foods and for plant-based proteins, but also for the trend of consumers wanting a closer connection to their food. So we are in hundreds of, of natural food stores around the country, our, our retail bag. Some of our customers, you know, in the food service side tend to be um, what's called fast casual healthy food restaurants, 
the salad bowls that have become very popular, you know, with companies like Kava Grill and Zoe's Kitchen and Sweet Green and Clover Food and, and others. Um, you know, they're, I mean, they're very good customers of ours. And, you know, the marketplace, you know, to some degree, you know, is also changing, especially, I think, with the, uh, you know, with the millennial generation in that uh, consumers increasingly care about the food that they eat and where it comes from. Uh, time was still, you know, able to basically to serve that niche, basically, right? Because, you know, I mean, we know our farmers. We are on their farms. And if anybody picks up a package of our product, you know, in New York City or Seattle or San Francisco, wherever, and calls us up and says, well, here's the, you know, here's a lot number on this, on this package. Where does this food come from? I mean, we can give that consumer that farmer's phone number and say, call up Joe. He can tell you why he's doing what he's doing. He can tell you what he's doing. He's, he can tell you the field that he planted that crop on that year, you know, and now it's on your plate. You know, I think part of our role in the food system is, you know, is to help make that connection from the people who grow the food to the, the people who eat the food. It's really been quite gratifying, you know, to know that our crops now are on the plates of millions of meals every year in the U.S. and, you know, and to some degree overseas as well. So um, a lot of patience, a lot of persistence, and uh, just good people, good people on both sides, great farmers, you know, and great customers, both of whom appreciate each other. All of this that's happened is far beyond the initial vision of Dave and his three co-founders, who initially just set out to be in the seed business. But even though they didn't consider themselves businessmen or engineers or food scientists, they were farmers, and in the way that many farmers do, they just did whatever it took to figure things out. Initially, we really started as a seed company, right? I mean, Timeless Seeds is the official name of the business because we were going to make a business out of this regenerating cover crop, George Black Medic, but also, you know, the lentils and yellow sweet clover and other legumes that work well in rotations. Like I say, we weren't businessmen, so we didn't write any business plan, frankly, but uh, but but didn't write a good one in the sense that uh, our original, you know, business was to grow and sell organic seed to other organic farmers. Well, there weren't that many organic farmers. <laughs> There's a problem here. It was a very small market, and. Uh, Farmers in those days that were, you know, that were considering converting to organic, they were on the same learning curve the rest of us were, you know, so we really didn't know what crops were going to work, really didn't know they needed legumes, really didn't know that, you know, ideally you have a cover crop every two or three or four years in your rotation. But you're absolutely right. I mean, the seeds for some of our crops, you know, are just not generally available. We're the ones that do them. So we remain a seed company, but really uh, our seed is just focused on on our own growers so we can have the food grade crops to sell. But growing a seed company and eventually growing a food company would not have been possible without solving their first problem, figuring out how to profitably grow these crops organically. Dave says their commitment, resolve, and funny enough, their lack of knowledge it couldn't be done, all were helpful. Like most organic farmers that are the, that are the first ones, you know, or the, or the first of a few in their county, Everybody thinks you're crazy, you know, which 
to some degree, that's justified, right? <laughs> because because uh, in my own case, and actually in the case of of all the founders of Timeless Seeds, uh, none of us went to a land grant university. You know, none of us learned how farming was supposed to be done. You know, which is to say, as it was done in the you know in the fifties and sixties, say. So, in a sense, maybe you know, our ignorance was a blessing, in the sense that. Uh, we didn't know it couldn't be done, you know, and, and from our reading and from, you know, experience in others and in other parts of the country, you know, California, you know, Pennsylvania, uh, the folks at, uh, at the Rodale Research Center and so forth, they were actually doing it in their environments with their own crops. But that, you know, I think that gave us some confidence and encouragement that, well, it can probably be done here as well. Dave says one of the core tenets to making these organic systems work is making sure to have really diverse rotations. Although they handle several different products, Timeless doesn't handle all of the different crops that these farmers grow to make the system work. Ideally, an organic rotation might be, you know, five to seven to even maybe maybe a dozen years, you know, before you return to the same crop on the same field. And we don't either have, you know, the capability, the markets, or, or frankly, even the interest to do all of the all the pieces in the rotation. For instance, uh, we, we don't do any oil seeds at all. A successful organic rotation might include two or three different cereal grains, two or three different pulse crops, you know, and maybe one or two oil seeds as well sometime in that rotation, as well as some cover crops, uh, you know, maybe perennial cover crop alfalfa, or something it might be in for, you know, for three or four years, or maybe sweet clover in for a couple years. So you kind of get all that added together. Often, you know, the successful organic farmers will have, boy, I mean, a five to seven year rotation would be very, very typical. And some of them have rotations that are twice that long. And uh, cover crops being maybe one fourth of that, something like that. And then the pulse crops, we really recommend that farmers not seed a given field to a pulse crop more often than every three or four years, at least, just to guard against some of the pathogens that, you know, that can come back to bite you if your rotations are too short. Right up there with the importance of diverse rotations, Dave says the next fundamental is to improve the health of your soil. The one thing that is really critical is healthy soils. That's just the bottom line. You know, if you start with, with worn-out soils, with soils that, that really depend on outside inputs because, you know, the organic matter is so low and the uh, soil microbiology, you know, is so diminished, then it's really going to be a challenge. Unlike many of us back in the 70s and 80s, it just sort of went cold turkey, said, well, you know, we don't like what our fathers did, so, you know, we're going to just do it different, period. And uh, that can very much be the school of hard knocks. You know, I think farmers these days, and, you know, we work with 30, 40 farmers. They've got kids moving back to the farm primarily. They have a lot of benefits, you know, in the sense that the land-grant universities now are giving real attention, doing research and so forth on organic farming systems, you know, and the transition to organic. So there's a lot of support there now, you know, that really wasn't there maybe 20, 30 years ago. But we don't encourage farmers to go cold turkey. Right. Because it is it is a huge learning experience, you know, and to make it work, the soils have to be headed in the right direction. None of us today have the soils that we, you know, would really like to have. 
Um, I know on my own farm, I, I mentioned before that when I moved back to the farm, the soil organic matter was, you know, kind of 1% plus or minus. We did soil tests on my farm here a couple of years ago, and uh, they were in the neighborhood of 4%. That's after 30 years, right? My farm is still only halfway back to where it was, you know, when the land was broke in the early 1900s. It's not a quick fix, you know. There is no quick fix. And it's not only in the organic world. Well, you know, I mean, this, I mean uh, the cover crops, you know, are getting a lot of attention and a lot of application on conventional farms, too. In the 70s, you know, in the 80s, we just looked at, uh, at single-species cover crops. That was a step in the right direction. It was only a small step in the right direction. You know, now most farmers use mixed-species cover crops, and there's a lot of good, you know, biological and agronomic reasons for using that. So progress is being made, you know. Progress still needs to be made. But I do think it's going to be a lot easier, you know, these days than it was 20 or 30 years ago for people who are interested in making that transition, both on the agronomic side, but also on the marketing side. The organic food industry in the U.S. now is is something over $50 billion. So there are markets, you know, for organic crops that can be grown. I think those markets need to continue to grow in order to support, you know, even more transition, you know, but literally the organic food market is it's a worldwide phenomenon with a worldwide demand. So you got to learn how to grow it to meet the organic specifications and to be successful doing it. But that processing and marketing infrastructure is increasingly available. Timeless fills one small piece of that niche. You know, there's lots of things we don't do. We don't make pasta. We don't make cookies. You know, uh, we don't make soup in a can. We are, you know, kind of primary processors and providers of ingredients to uh, either to food manufacturers, to restaurants, to home cooks. But that whole side of the industry has has just grown phenomenally in the last 30 years, the processing and marketing infrastructure. Many will characterize what Dave and the others at Timeless are creating as a more sustainable food system. But rather than sustainable, Dave says he prefers a different word, resilient, a system that is more able to meet whatever challenges that the future might hold. Neither one of the terms has you know, a legal definition, you know, if you will, as, you know, as uh, certified organic as of the year 2000, basically, it actually had a legal definition of what that is, legal guidelines, uh, and so forth that one needed to follow to use that term. The importance of, of, and the increasing importance of the term resiliency is that it just, it recognizes that farming is subject to a lot of challenges. I mean, local challenges that you know, again, might have to do with drought or might have to do with excessive rainfall or might have to do with severe winters or lack of snow or too much snow, whatever it is. And then more recently, you know, the challenge has to do with uh, with climate change, which we are definitely seeing, you know, the impacts of that in Montana, as, as many farmers are around the globe. What resiliency speaks to, you know, is just the fact that the land, the crops, you know, can withstand stresses, whether that's weather stresses, climate stresses, or whatever. You know, when I look back on my own heritage, my grandparents uh, on both sides of my family immigrated to the United States in the early 1900s. The fact is they were climate refugees back then because 
they were really victims of the Little Ice Age that hit primarily Europe between essentially 1450 and 1850. The climate cooled dramatically, and it had a tremendous impact on agriculture, a tremendous impact. I mean, farmers and and my grandparents included actually could not grow enough to eat. Grandparents on, on my father's side of the family, uh, they actually survived one winter in Norway just by eating the screenings from a local flour mill. And, um, you know, I mean, the story was actually repeated across Northern Europe. People were eating the horses that they had used to pull their plows. And that was, to a large extent, what actually drove all the immigration, you know, into the U.S. Uh, but, you know, the lesson to be learned there is that climate can have a huge impact on, you know, on one's livelihood, on one's life, you know, and on what one can farm, you know, and can farm successfully. Especially now that we, you know, have have essentially run out of land, run out of new land uh, to break, it's important that we figure out how to be resilient, you know, in our own operations. For a lot of us, when we hear that word resiliency, our minds go immediately to climate resiliency, what Dave just talked about. But he also adds that community is an important part of resiliency as well. Well, you know, I think one of the things that we have discovered, you know, and that is uh, that was really highlighted in, uh, in Liz Carlisle's book, Lentil Underground, is the fact that community is part of resiliency. You know, it's just not the soil. It's just not... It's just not the microorganisms, you know, it's just not the plants, it's just not the crop rotations. It is the community of farmers that join together to share the information that they have, uh, in many cases share equipment that they have with each other, you know, and to share the knowledge that they've learned because, uh, you know, no one has written the final book yet, you know, on farming or on organic agriculture, certainly, you know, and I think... uh, Resiliency really starts, really starts with the human being, you know, and really starts with the knowledge and the willingness to share that knowledge uh, so that the entire community can survive, can thrive. Okay, what a great place to end a fantastic episode. Thanks so much to Dave Oyen for being on the show. And to follow what they're doing over there at Timeless Food, you can follow them on social media and visit their website, timelessfood.com. Also, you can pick up the book, Lentil Underground, that covers Dave's story wherever books are sold. Again, this show was created for the Growing Pulse Crops podcast, which you can find on any podcast platform. That show is brought to you by the Pulse Crops Working Group with support from the USA Dry Pea and Lentil Council, as well as the North Central IPM Center and USDA NIFA. Once again, thank you so much for your time and your attention. I don't take it lightly. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation. Ag innovation.